This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. And yet we have no choice except to learn how to, as you say, get along or belong to each other. For the Wild is honored to present The Edges in the Middle, a series of conversations between Biocomalafe and thought companions like John A. Powell, V, Naomi Klein, and more. These limited episodes have been adapted from Bio's work as the Global Senior Fellow at UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute. In this role, Bio has been holding a series of public conversations on issues of justice and belonging for the Institute's Democracy and Belonging Forum, which connects and resources civic leaders in Europe and the U.S. who are committed to bridging across differences to strengthen democracy and advance belonging in both regions and around the world. BIO's conversations encourage us to rethink justice, hope, and belonging by sitting amidst the noise, not trying to cover it up with pleasant rhythms. To learn more about the Democracy and Belonging Forum, visit democracyandbelongingforum.org. This recording features Bio's conversation with John A. Powell, director of the Othering and Belonging Institute. Bio and John play with trouble, belonging, and breaks of transmission. I think it is a beautiful thing to begin with gratitude. Gratitude is seems ironic, maybe a contradictory thing, a paradoxical thing, especially in times such as we're in. But it's a good place to begin. So I want to give thanks to the Othering and Belonging Institute and the Democracy and Belonging Forum for inviting this queer aesthetic of inquiry to take root which we call the Umbari. And I'll just share a bit about that, but not before acknowledging an elder and someone I deeply respect who is joining me in conversation, uh, this being the first of this adventure into depths. And I just want to also welcome Elder John Powell. Thank you very much, sir, for this conversation. Um, I have to say that the reason I call um, him Elder is uh, among many other things, Yoruba people, especially you know within the context away from the cities, do not know how to call people that they respect by their names. So I respect him and his work, and I'm going to be calling him Elder John, just so we position ourselves within that reality. But I want to begin with this short introduction to an umbari just to set the stage to offer a libation into what this is about the ancient traditions of Igbo people the Igbo people are from eastern nigeria is to create a building and dedicate this building to a goddess 
Allah. This building is not designed to last. Uh, this building is designed to be eaten up by the goddess, the goddess of the earth. So it's an art form that is dedicated to decay, that is dedicated to rupture, that is dedicated to vanishing. Um, it's not built to last, it's built to be given away, so to speak. I'm inspired by the work of writers like Chino Achebe. One of the quotes of Chino Achebe is that the impatient idealist says, give me a place to stand and I shall move the earth. But there is no place to stand. Such a place doesn't exist. We move at the world's pace. Umbari is a desire to move conversation at the world's pace. It's not a quest for truth, at least not truth in the final analysis um, in that Western notion of arrival. Right? It's not a quest for final arrangements. It's not a quest for critique. It's not a desire for agreement or, consens or consensus. Um, an umbari is a desire to um, have a conversation in such a way that it falls to the more than human, that it might be best expressed by a proverb, an Igbo proverb, that says, if a meal is properly cooked, it will reach the ants. So maybe we're having a conversation in such a way that it might reach ants. How might it feel to have a conversation, to talk in ways that are not about finding some universal notion, but about allowing it to decay, allowing it to wash away, to disappear? The things that will be said between Elder John and myself are diffractively composed. I don't think we're searching for consensus or a manifesto. We're looking for a meal that might serve goddesses, that might feed ants. So we invite you to take whatever, whatever is resonant. And if there are questions that emerge from this diffractive experiment, then all the better. And with that, I, again, Elder John, thank you so much for being in conversation with me. I've, I was struggling with how to start, the best place to start. How do I start such a conversation? Um, well, the first question that I feel might be a beautiful rabbit hole to get into um, is the one that is already in the title. Why don't we get along? Why don't we just have peace on earth? It's, it's a low ball. It's a softball. <laughs> I think that's the expression. But I think we can swing. We can swing away from there and see what happens. So, Elder? It's, it's great to be in conversation with you. I'm looking forward to it, uh, both today and in the future, and in your role as, uh, um, with, the, with the Institute. You know, Thank that you. question reminds me of Rodney King. And I know some of the uh, listeners are from the United States. Some are from other parts of the world. But uh, Rodney King was beat on film by the LA police. He was down on all fours. They went to trial, the police went to trial and uh, they were acquitted. There was a second trial and they were convicted. And then he became somewhat famous. And right. one of his comments was, why can't we just get along? Yeah. And so in some sense, he posed that question. Um, there's a lot in that question, like there are in many questions. Uh, it's not clear that we want to get along. 
who is the who is the we that want to get along? Uh, right. And Rodney King's case, African American man, uh, the police talked about him being big and scary. They were not trying to get along with him. They were trying to make him submit. They were trying to dominate. Yeah. And so I think people, we and people around the earth and in our communities and in our home, part of the thing is what is our intention? What is the way we're showing up? Uh, there's also a question of what supports us, uh, how our physical space, our mm-hmm. psychological space, our moral space is organized uh, because we navigate through these spaces and they activate different things. And so right. I think it's not inevitable that we don't get along, but it's certainly not inevitable that we do. I think we have some agency in this. And the agency is not just personal. The agency is also how do we interact with our environment? So one way of reframing the question would be, what do we need to do if we want to get along? Uh-huh. Right. I know the Rodney King story. Um, and in, fr- in fact, I, I believe it was part of the storing of this conversation. And that question is, yes, it is. I feel it's theoretically dense and inviting. It's juicy. There's something that wants to be said there. And thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to go deeper into how we frame belonging and how we think about belonging, especially in these times when it seems, um, well, we're in a time of war and strife, not just on the African continent. When um, Kenya just went through a largely peaceful election process, not the same in Nigeria, where I come from, where there are warring tribes and parties that no longer represent the people. America, the United States of America, seems to be an exemplar for weaponized divisions today. And those of us in the so-called global South observing are asking these same questions. How come there are these strange and rabid divisions where the left is unable to speak with the right or the right with the left. Um, And what does it invite us to do with our aesthetics and politics, especially the ones that seek belonging, that Mm -hmm. seeks to build home for the many instead of the few? So again, I think a very uh, important question and and one looking at the world, whether it's the United States or Kenya or Nigeria or India, Argentina, there's a strife everywhere. In some ways, we're, we are, um, you know, it's almost like in the biblical uh, discussion of the Tower of Babylon, where people came together and was building this tower to heaven. And then they were cursed by having different languages and division, and they start fighting each other. Um, uh-huh. In some ways, we're being pushed together in the world. It used to be that Nigeria was a long ways away. It's not anymore. It used to be that... Um, India was, uh, from the United States perspective, was some strange, exotic place. It's not anymore. It's next door. It's on your smartphone. We have, in a sense, we're bumping up against each other. Um, And we haven't really gone through the process of actually living a world where we all belong. From my perspective, our connection to each other is real. It's not just an aspiration. It's not just academic. But we don't live that way. Our connection to the earth, our connection to the ants, 
is already there. But with trailing, right. we're objecting. We're saying, no, not them, not them. And, um, and yet we have no choice except to learn how to, as you say, get along or belong to each other. And we see each other as a threat. And we don't come to that by ourselves. We're helped the stories that we inhabit, the movies that we, the fear that animates much of our lives. You know, we, we have, I think, tremendous capacity, as you talked about in the beginning, to create, to tell stories, to fix, to fix meals. Uh, well, we also have uh, deep anxiety, deep fear. And so both of those things are there. And unfortunately, we spend way too much time feeding one and not the other. Uh, feeding our fear, feeding our anxiety, feeding our, our, our um, threat. Uh, and so we act that way. Uh, everyone seems like a potential threat. Every group seems like a potential threat. And part of it, I think, is also a possessiveness, right? It's like, it's not our earth, it's my earth. It's not our yeah. country, it's my country. Our water is my water. You know, where we have that my in opposition to everybody else, we're going to have conflict. Uh, I think that's the challenge is can we recognize that not only is it our earth, our water, our food, that the only way we really thrive is when we hold each other, when we see each other, when we recognize each other. But that's not the way we've grown up in many cases. It's not the way uh, political systems are organized. Uh, I think when you dig deep into belonging, the idea of left and right starts to melt away. We're talking about life. We're talking about, you know, you look at a baby. Is the baby left or right? You know, mm. most of us see a baby, we sort of move with love and deep connection. What's that baby's politics? Um, <laughs> Maybe one more before I, I, I realize I'm asking more questions. Um, but if, if that's all I have to do here, it's fine. I have a few questions for you as well. You have a few questions. Okay, just one more. Just one more. Um, it's it's really about the political imaginaries that are the contemporary political products of today and whether they're able to hold the weight, the ontological weight of this desire for belonging. I mean, you spoke about gods and towers of Babylon. One unnamed god in the pantheon of gods in Yoruba land was a musician who's widely considered the father of Afrobeat, Fela Anikula Okuti, who whose music ushered us into this session, and he would um, he would rail against democracy and call it demonstration of craze uh, or crazy demonstration. Beautiful music, hip jiving music, but his point was this political imaginary seems to have been imposed upon us as a people and it's actually carving us apart cleaving us apart so that inspires me to ask about the dynamics of the politics of foot today uh, which some might name you know in the cadence of inclusivity or justice what is it about these approaches these modes of encounter that might actually get in the way of our desire to belong, to build home projects for each other? Well, um, there's a lot in that question. Um, yeah. And we, the Other Belonging Institute, 
I'm the founding director. But the issue of belonging, um, you know, we, we, we draw inspiration from all over the world. Uh, as, as you know, I, I, my daughter was born in uh, Tanzania and I worked in yeah. South Africa. And the concept of belonging, it, you know, uh, is uh, in reality belonging. We literally are born as humans connected to another being. Uh, mm -hmm. And how we express that belonging may vary from band to band, from nation to nation, but all of us need to belong. We need to belong to the earth. We need to belong to each other. Then we may have our particular ways of expressing it, uh, just like we may have our particular ways of uh, recognizing the divine. And sometimes that particularity becomes ossified. You know, it's like uh, the way you eat your food is we all need to eat, uh, but it doesn't mean we eat the same food. It uh, doesn't eat the same way. Do we eat with a hand? Do we eat with a fork? Do we eat with a chopstick? Do we eat with a spoon? Uh, and there's a, a concept called uh, uh, schizogenesis. Uh, I'm reading a book now called The Dawn of Everything. Um, and Great book. Uh, yes. And so in the idea of schizo schizogenesis is that sometimes we define ourselves against something else. If you do something, Great. you like jazz? Okay, I like rock. You know, uh, you like hot, I like cold. And it's not just that I like cold, it's that I'm trying to distinguish myself from Bayou. So there, whatever he likes, I like the opposite. I think even in that as a relationship, that's a relationship itself. And uh, we, we have multiple expressions of ourselves within ourselves and collectively. Uh, but I think sometimes we celebrate uh, differences that are not necessarily as important as we think they are. Um, right. And it gets organized politically. You know, when you look at strife and war and stuff, it's not, it's not just two people having a fight. It's someone, usually a leader, the elites are saying, you don't like those people. They're not like us. Uh, they don't eat like us. And usually we do a caricature. Those people become flat. We don't really know them. We only know them in our imagination. Uh, we don't mm -hmm. know their operation, their pain, their suffering, their joys. So that's part of it. I mean, um, uh, we do need to get to know each other. Uh, and we do need to co-create. And the last thing I'll say is on the issue of democracy. And we have uh, people at the Institute who are from Africa. Uh, and they raise the question, is democracy a Western idea? And you, you sort of indicated, Bob, that you know that book, Dawn of Everything. But the authors make the point that many of these concepts that were associated with the West actually don't come from the West. They come from yeah. indigenous people yeah. all around the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we need to be careful not to just both attach something and then throw it out because we assume this is Western. The, the, the yeah. roots of democracy, at least as I understand it, is that it's co-creation. That people get to create the thing that they belong to. If they want to create something different then call it something different, that's fine. As a, but opposed to domination, as opposed to someone imposing something on it. Uh, uh -huh. And so uh, there are many different expressions of democracy in the United States, which would be a democracy. It's never really been a democracy. Uh, it's what my friend Michael Lomi and Howard Winner call a racial dictatorship, where one group dominates another group. Uh, right. uh, and that's the antithesis, at least in my understanding what we mean when we say co-creation or democracy.
I'm going to so, pause here and invite you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Any questions? So you've traveled many parts of the world. You're living in Chennai right now from Nigeria. Tell us a little bit about your journey and about what keeps you grounded, what keeps you moving forward, what keeps you sort of in this process of co-creating a future that we might have to live in. Where do you draw inspiration from? This might sound trite and ordinary, but yeah, it's ordinary and it's beautiful. Um, I draw inspiration from my family, from my children, from my life partner, my wife. My story of migration is, and just in the back room, we're speaking about um, the migration of a god, a Yoruba god, a trickster who left the shores of Africa and traveled with, this is an ap apocryphal account for those who are just hearing this story for the first time, who traveled with the slaves, as the elders in my part of the world um, tell the story, aboard those ships. Um, and the question is always, why? Why did he do that? Why, did, why didn't he just save them? Why did he not just, uh, why did he intercept his brother, the god of iron and victory, Ogun, um, from saving the situation, from mounting, su successfully mounting an insurgency? And some of the tentative answers, responses given to that are, Without the, these departures, belonging is impossible. Without the going away, we may not be able to meet ourselves as if for the first time. Um, I think I've, I don't want to sound essentialist, but in many senses, I was, I, I feel I was conditioned. My philosophies, my politics, my upbringing. I, I grew up in a very, um, traveling family. My father was a diplomat. So I, I grew up wanting always to travel, like that God issue, whose one desire, when, when asked by the chief God, Olodumare, all the others said, we want the power of lightning, I want the power of the ocean. And he said, I just want to see the world. I want to travel. Mm -hmm. right? I feel that desire to travel kind of innervates me and activates my politics. It's brought me from Nigeria to India. I, I dwell well within the foreign and the strange. Maybe that's part of my psychological resistance subconsciously of learning the Tamil language. But that's a different story because I don't want it to be familiar. <laughs> At least this is what I tell myself for my failures, my repeated failures to learn the language. But this inspires me, stories of adventure not adventure in the medieval sense, but adventure in the sense of novelty is just at the edge of the horizon, that there's something else, something we're not able to think within our political imaginaries, something we're not able to calculate or anticipate or articulate within the lexicon available. So we need a trickster. We need a trickster to burst open new pathways for us, if you will. Thank you. I have one more question. Um, okay. <laughs> having some attraction to the foreign and what, what, and liking to travel, maybe even more than liking to travel, needing to travel. One of the things, as I look out at the world, um, think of the word alien. The word alien. alien and the word foreign are very close. And 
people are being animated by fear. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, fear is a very old emotion. You know, even uh, animals have fear, and this is part of the oldest part of the brain. So if you're acting out of fear, you have a big playground to play in. Uh, and apparently, one of the things that can be animated in our world today is the, the fear of the other, the fear of the foreign, yeah. the fear of the yeah. unknown. Uh, and yet we're being asked to actually engage with people who are in some ways different, but in many ways like us. Uh, and so I wonder in your travels, if you're seeing that and how you, how, I mean, you know, uh, virtually every society that's roiling has a story about the other. Uh, yes. And they substitute different people in the story. So in the United States is blacks and immigrants. Uh, in India, it may be a Muslim. And in Europe, it may be uh, uh, Turks or Syrians or, uh, and it's always foreigners, those foreigners, those other people who are not part of the we. Uh, mm. uh, and in your travels, uh, and this, just as a footnote, my daughter's first language was Tamil. Uh, we were living in India. Uh, no kidding. <laughs> we had us with us, and uh, my daughter was muttering, and the woman said, uh, why, don't, why don't you respond to her? And she said, she's just she was babbling. No, she's not babbling. She's asking for milk. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh my! How has that? How how have you sort of processed that? How do you? How do you? How do you? What do we need to do to sort of? You have a curiosity. I can tell you have a deep curiosity. So what's born yeah. to you? It's inviting. It's part of yes. it's knowledge. It's, it's it. but to a lot of people, it's the edge of fear. It's the edge of yeah, yeah. threat. How do, you, yeah. how do you move from? the foreign being a threat to the foreign being the new and, and knowledge? I mean, when I first came to India, there was, um, it, I, I was, there was, I felt cultural shock. It was the shock of being in a place where I wasn't part of the crowd, right? Nigeria is the largest black nation on earth. I would disappear in, a, in an instant, but I suddenly stood out. And not just that I stood out, but I was, I, it felt like I was called out because the billboards around our home were plastered with adver advertisements around fair and lovely cream. I remember, like, you can get fairer cream. And when I walked down the street to the grocery store, um, people would gather to look at me, you know, like I was this strange being it was very uncomfortable at first and it tested me for a bit um i won't go down that rabbit hole except to say this that i started to open up myself to the experience of even being objectified right <laughs> like to touch what it meant to be stabilized by a different gaze the gaze of an other right what would it mean to stay here and to inhabit this place and to touch it and to see what happens. So instead of enacting an approach of reactivity, of just lashing back, um, um, I embraced conversation. I embraced hospitality as a way of breaking the spell 
of the image. I, like issue, slipped away with the slave ships. I also slipped away from the mm -hmm. image that I, I'd been assigned to, the pre-designated boxes that had my name on it. Mm -hmm. And with that, I met new people, new friends, new community, new ideas. Maybe the point here for me is societies co-create their monsters and they need monsters sometimes, right? In order to say, this is where you dwell. This is the boundary of sanity. This is the boundary of morality. Don't go to the places where dragons are. Dragons are yonder. We create monsters and monsters have been cultural tools for us to create settlement. But over time, settlement starts to get carceral. It, begun, it begins to get incarcerating. So we develop something that I call settlement cognition in our ways of thinking and organizing mm -hmm. and marking the world. At those times, I think the work to do is to embrace the monster, such as I've been embraced um, here to the community that I call family, is to embrace the monster, is to take monsters for picnics. The mm -hmm. monster is the edge of settlement, is the edge of novelty, until we come to a place of where there's shadow, where there's depth, where there's uncertainty, until we learn to live with the noise you know, what scholars like Fred Moulton, Sadia Hartman will call black geographies, black noise. Until we learn to live with that noise, we will continue to live with, within this toxic cyclicity of repeating the same old images we're used to and continuing to otherize even the angels that have been sent to us. So I, mm. I, I was a monster um, in many senses, still am a monster. Um, but I'm learning to live within that paradigm and to embrace it and to also see that as an invitation for me to cast my eyes on the horizon and see the masks dancing beyond my own fences. Maybe then new political imaginaries might be possible, gifted to me by the monster. So, so I, I want to make space for other questions and for questions yes. from audience. But I have one more. Uh, what you just said was so beautiful and powerful. I just want to excavated a little bit. Um, okay. Um, and excuse me if I'm in the translation, but one of the things we talk a lot about is bridging. How do you yeah. connect with people who are supposedly others? How do you connect with people who are supposedly the monster? Uh, yeah. What you described in part was you're being cast as the monster, but you did yes. the bridge. You did the opening up. You did the, and a lot of people say, why should we, We'll be Why should we do that work? Have to be the one doing the bridging. Why do we have to actually extend ourselves? Which it sounds like what you've done. Um, yeah. A lot of people say, you know, we're experiencing trauma, we're experiencing pain. Um, no, I'm not going to extend myself. In fact, some people even go so far as to say, I'm going to be that monster, uh, and I'm going to breathe fire, not love. <laughs> so, one. So, how do you respond to that? And and when you talked about the trickster, one of the things I think about is play. You know, yes. play sort of turn things on their head. You know, you don't you don't quite see it coming. It's like, uh, um, and it, it takes an openness to really play. Uh, it takes a curiosity to really play. And I don't know that we know how to play anymore. Most of us have forgotten how to play. That's one of the sad things. Children know how to play. Adults have 
by and large forgotten how to play. So yes. what do you say to people who say, you know, I'm being other and I'm pissed, I'm angry and I'm slapping back. Uh, I'm not going to extend myself in conversation yes. otherwise to the other. I think um, with great compassion to those responses, I think most of the time when we respond in that way, we fail to see or we obscure the gift that is refusal, um, that is the invitation to play. Um, as you eloquently said, Elder, the trickster is the invitation to move from side to side, to break the posture that we're used to, to play like children. Um, that's a gift. That's the decolonial. Decoloniality for me is playful cosmology. It's the call to create anew. It's the call to leave the familiar behind and dwell within the black noise of the uncertain and then to see what happens there. Just like the people, the Inuit um, people that have this beautiful ritual called Katsiluni. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, which is sitting in the dark and waiting for something to happen. And it's part of this wailing tradition of co-creating a song, um, but the lyrics are not clear to you at the point of creating the song. So they go into this room and they sit and they're still. And somehow through the ordinary, and I started our conversation by speaking about the ordinary being um, more extraordinary than the extraordinary. But somehow the ordinary gifts the moment, the darkness, the lyrics of the song that wants to be born. Um, so I, in, in that way, I, I feel that um, when we say, for instance, that I don't want to extend myself, I deeply understand that in my bones because I was there as well. But the invitation to extend oneself is exceeds conversations about entitlement and rights and privileges. It's the trickster. It's the trickster giving us an advantage to break outside of the settlement cognitions and colonial bubbles of identity with which we framed our worlds and our homes. So it's actually a gift. It's an advantage. It's a plus to exceed those boxes, to move outside of the way. Um, and this is what I think of as refusal or what I often write of as untold fugitivity. It's about us escaping the plantation that belabors or uses our labor to create worlds. And one of the ways that I think that is done is through very colonial, stabilizing, static notions of identity. That we're here and there's nothing else to be known about us. This is who you are. It's very Aristotelian. Platonic. This is where you sit. That's all there is to you. This is not my cosmology. The world that I come from means that I always travel, that the local and the diasporic are entangled with each other. My response to that is, is duplicitous. I, I understand on the one hand um, why people would respond that way. And I understand the politics that makes that possible. But I also long for something more than critique. I also long for something more than just the one we're used to, the politics we're used to. I long for flight. I long mm -hmm. to move away from the shores that I'm used to because it doesn't seem to be working for even those that are privileged anymore. Thank you. I see questions are coming in, so I'm going to turn it back to you. I'm reminded, uh, 
you know, Toni Morrison basically said, paraphrasing, that if you want to destroy people, take away their dreams. Um, yes. To me, is that's partially what she's saying. Dreaming is one of the places that we play. It's one of the places that we break out of the, the static. Uh, yeah. And so sometimes in terms of being colonialized, it's not just our physical bodies, that our minds, our capacity just to dream. Yeah. And fracture. Yeah. Yes, yes. It 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 it's um it's that even sometimes in our attempts to redress to address um the ills, the oppressive ills of of colonial arrangements, we feed those arrangements, we reinforce them, we reinscribe um the hurt and the pain. So the gift of refusal, the gift of play is to dance away from those algorithms so that we might find other ways to compose reality, to compose belonging. And this might be, I'm, I'm noticing the question, how do we play when we feel physically and emotionally unsafe with others? For, for me, Elder, belonging isn't something that comes from human longings. Belonging is a dense materiality. It's animacy. It's multi-species salon. It's not just how we feel. It's not just the um, legal frameworks. It's not just the architecture. It's not just inclusivity. Of course, um, you've written extensively about that. It's also viruses and microbial activisms in our guts. It's also um, texture and color and a non-human world. So that belonging, bodies, be bodies do not precede belonging. Belonging creates subjectivity. It creates our bodies. So there will be moments when we feel unsafe physically and emotionally. And I don't think I can speak in some universal sense and say, stay there and see what happens. Um, uh, we have to deal with each specificity as it comes. But there is, I think, even in the most oppressive circumstances, as African elders would attest to, even in the most oppressive, dark places, there is a glimmer of hope. There is a glimmer of light. There is a trickster traveling with a fragile, precious treasure to plant in the diasporic, to do strange things with it. Um, so unsafety, uncertainty might produce strange things. Um, the work then is to create community for us to hold and cultivate the resilience to stay with that trouble together. I'm using Donna Haraway's phrase, stay with the trouble. The questions that are pouring in, and uh, so I'm going to take another one. But I, people have heard me talk about my my family. Uh, you mentioned that's part of your inspiration. Uh, it is. Said my both the parents have passed now, so I'm an orphan um, in a way. But they left me so much, including uh, my siblings. But if I were to chronicle all the difficulties of my parents' life in terms of being sharecroppers in the South, in terms of uh, right. watching and being aware of people being killed and literally lynched uh, of when I was a young man and my dad, a furnace blew up in his face and we're driving around Detroit looking for a hospital that would accept uh, a black man into them, into the hospital. Uh, there's a lot of what we might call trauma or pain. Uh, and yet, if you had met my mom and dad, uh, and some of you have the story of that pain and their story would seem to be incongruent. There was so much love. My mom was a trickster. My dad was a bodhisattva. Uh, um, and 
uh, I feel blessed, not just to have them as parents, but that some of that maybe has rubbed off on me. And I don't want to belittle people's pain and suffering through yeah. pain. Uh, at the same time, if we just stay there, then that starts to define us. The pain is like there's a second and third injury from the pain. It's not just a event. It's the second and third injury. We can't see anything else. Uh, one last story before we take another question. I had an uncle. Uh, he passed away. When we were a young man, he was not much older than me, but still my uncle. Uh, a yellow jacket flew into his ear. And his response was to cup his ear. And he's running down the street screaming. And we were saying, you know, Lloyd, remove your hand. And of course, the yellow jacket, as you know, is the wasp. And it kept stinging him over and over again. And his holding his ear made it so the yellow jacket couldn't get out. And he essentially lost his hearing. And his reaction was understandable. But in many ways, it made things worse as well. That feels like a trauma response. It's how we hold it in. The efforts to get rid of the pain become the efforts to contain it. Right. So one question is, how can we teach one another to play the role of the trickster, identity smasher, new world creators? I'll start, but then I'll turn it over to Bayou. Bayou shared with us his tradition and uh, family in, in Nigeria. Uh, many of us, I would think, uh, are not Nigerian, maybe some of you are. Many of us have had different traditions. So I don't know if we can completely, without more work, without more investigation, interrogate uh, tricksters. I think it's something to sort of orient us in a certain way. And we may have our own way of playing, our own way of actually engaging what I call our multiple identities. Um, I think that if we, I think we are multiple identities. And the reason we don't experience that is that there's something holding us back. There's something we're taught not to actually um, investigate, experience, relax into our multiple identities. And one of the things about play, when you think about kids, when they play, oftentimes they play from a space of multiple identities. They take on different characters. Uh, they take on, um, they'll be a bird, they'll be a river. Uh, so they're doing that very early. And then we teach them, to stop. You're not a bird. You're not a river. You stay. You're this. You're John. It's like, uh, so I think part of this is, is going back to that. And then uh, Bayo talked about different traditions and even rituals that help us play. And we may need that as well. And so, for example, obviously, music, dance, 
that's about playing. That's about taking on something different. Um, so I think that we may have to think about and invite playing back into our lives, both individually and collectively. But while you're back now, so let me turn this over to you. I think we started to speak about tricksters too much. And so the place got dense. The technology <laughs> could not hold the weight of our conversation. I apologize. Um, my, my first response to that, the question about um, identity bursting work smashes and the trickster is that I do not think of humans as tricksters. I think of the trickster as this energetic flow, this liminal quality that shapes new possibilities, which enlists humans as well as non-humans. And it's always invitational. It's an invitation like the elder I heard you saying. It's an invitation to play. Now, the trickster's deepest work is to break open binaries, is to disturb binaries, whether it's between God and man, um, man and woman, or uh, heaven and hell, or language and uh, reality, or reason and emotion, is to burst the idea that these are binaries and to find a way, one might call it a third way, between the cracks of binaries. So I often think of a politics or an aesthetic or an art that is in response to the trickster as post-activism or as making sanctuary. That is an invitation to play, to compose from the fabric of our loss and our grieving um, and our not knowing an art, a way of keeping track of our bodies, so to speak. Um, so in the places where we don't know, in the places where we're not sure any longer, in the places where we feel defeated, where we feel um, like we're failed and we're failures, and there are lots of stories to be told about the educational system in India and how it co-produces um, failure as a phenomenon. In those places, I think, I think the, the trickster abides. The trickster dwells in the cracks in modernity. So where you think that things don't add up, you want to gravitate towards those things and find community to hold you and hold that precious thing that wants to emerge. Grieving together is trickster work. Playing together is trickster work. Sitting in the dark and waiting for something to happen is trickster work. So wherever you find openings in the explanation we give to things, that is the invitation to the trickster, I think. Thank you. And I'm going to read one more question. Um, okay. We may have time for two more. I am Asian from an all-white community in Ohio. I spent time in Kenya where I was in Zunyu. I know what that means. It means basically... Umzungu. Yes. Yeah, a monster. Yeah. Uh, but it was easy to embrace being a monster there. I find it impossible to do it in this country, though. Why? Um, let me just speculate. Obviously, we don't know why. Um, yeah. But I've lived in Africa. I've lived in uh, an indigenous, um, um, what's now called Navajo or Hopi. Um, and I remember people coming up to me and seeing me as the other. But there was no, it was almost like a, just a, a fact. It wasn't like, I'm going to beat you up. It wasn't that, it didn't have the, the kind of uh, toxicity that, uh, I find 
sometimes in black in America carries with it. And so I was the other, but I was, there was a certain, I don't know if the, what the right word is, but there was a certain openness, curiosity, uh, just matter of fact. And so in a sense, there was place to, places to move. I remember one of the things I used to do when I lived on the Navajo and Hopi reservation, I used to stand on my head a lot doing yoga. When people, sometimes when they would get uh, a little frustrated with me, they say, go stand on your head. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, but I've never heard someone who was being hostile to me because of their racism. Right. Right. Go stand on your head. It's like they say, right. cease this. They say you're uh-huh. threatened in a way. So that was my experience, but I, I do have, have had the experience of being othered in co- different cultures where it wasn't a threat, where it wasn't quite as hard, where it wasn't crusted in some way, and there was a possibility of movement. In the United States, I feel like it's, uh, it's much harder in some way. There's a much larger narrative, and there are structures to support that narrative, uh, and it's a collective narrative. So that's, that's right. my response. Bayou, do you want to respond to that as well? Yeah, I do. Um, I think the United States has, um, this is where this speaker is from, um, is speaking from Ohio, right? Yes. In the United States. So I, I think the United States has a lot of practice at being empire. And empires eventually start to, after using up all the resources, natural resources, human resources, when they run out of resources, they start to, they might commodify monsters as well, right? And take the other and contain it and in an algorithm of indigestibility, put it in a family way so that it continues to reproduce for them, which is my high phalaton way of saying that some of the cultures that I've also had the privilege of living with um, always have others. You know, it's almost inescapable that we co-produce the other in co-producing place. But they have healthy encounters with the others. Um, uh, Yoruba people have a sense of orita. This is the crossroads. That is, they say that the crossroad interpenetrates everything. That if you go to a marketplace and you bend down and you look at the world between your legs, you know, the, the world behind you, you will find monsters. So that they are not far away. They're not in the wilds beyond fences. They're right here with us and we're indebted to them. So there is, and Yoruba people pray to issue. They say issue come close, but not too close. So there's this healthy fascination with the trickster, but also a deep respect that to engage the trickster is to engage risk. I feel this is entirely missing in empire, or at least so repressed or pushed down as to be of no consequence. It's that even monsters are now game for capitalist reproduction. And so it's almost impossible to have that conversation in that space. What needs to happen, maybe, I would venture out to say, is a break, a break in transmission, or else empire will keep on reproducing itself. So something needs to interpenetrate that model and invite a falling apart. And I'm not speaking in terms of nation states falling apart. I'm speaking in terms of um, people meeting the trickster in local puddles of refusal and finding a new 
um, a world of play that could not have been possible if they stuck within those empiric assemblages. So we're almost out of time. I'm going to throw out one more question and give a quick response. The question is, is emotional justice and belonging linked? Is emotional justice and belonging linked? And let me just add one thing to what Bio just said. Um, I'm here in the United States. I'm in Berkeley, California. So things may seem very solid, but they're not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in uh, Africa doing work on um, ending apartheid when Steve Biko was killed. I was actually yeah. doing postgraduate work. So I was studying uh, what was happening in Southern Africa. And when Steve Biko died or was killed, I felt like South Africa, Mozambique, um, Zimbabwe, they will never become uh, post-colonial. Uh, and a few years later, apartheid had begun to crumble. I'd miss the fragility of it. It looked like this huge empire, if you will, and yet it was yes. fragile. Uh, yes. And so I think that even as we think about empire, there's a fragility to that. And part of yes. the fragility is the people themselves. Um, and we're running out of time, so I'm not going to go into it, but I, but I, thought, I want us to sort of distinguish between the empire and the people. Uh, that yeah. all of us, for the most part, white, black, straight, gay, are trapped in this empire, sort of. And we're not all in the same position, but this empire is weighing upon all of us, and it's fragile. Indeed. Indeed. The fragility, in part, can be uh, accelerated uh, by belonging, by the trickster. But if we see it as this, this big thing that can't change, it actually freezes us as well. Um, and so in terms of your question, is emotional justice and belonging linked? I would say yes, but they're not the same. Um, and to me, belonging already exists. We don't live it. We don't celebrate it. We don't acknowledge it. But it's there. We're always connected. We're always belonging to each other. We already belong to the earth. We may not recognize it. Justice is something different. Justice is not something that's already there. Um, Bayou, let me have the chat the last 60 seconds. <laughs> 60 seconds. I would say yes, but I would also want to, I struggle with the term emotional justice, the phrasing of that. Maybe I would invite more conversation about um, emotional justice as a concept. But yes, justice and belonging play with each other, but there are also moments when it seems this trope of belonging that we're, we're building concepts around where it pushes out and it seeks new ways of traveling. When home is no longer hospitable, what do we do? Maybe that's how I end um, that or respond to that question. Thank you. It's time with Thank you, Elder. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this special episode of The Edges in the Middle with Bio Akomalafe and John A. Powell. The music you heard today was by Sitka Sun, graciously provided by the Long Road Society record label. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Julia Jackson. <laughs>